The Pilbara Killings by Sabine T. Shecklam, as read by Andrews Barr. Chapter 16. Passports, please. Check. Well, one visa at any rate. That's for you, Ahmed. The man pushed his documents forward. He was used to all the checking. Coming from Tehran, young Ahmed Ajad had been on work experience with the unit since the start of the year, and Zimmerman had taken an instant shine to him. Conscientious, punctual, respectful. What more could anyone want? Well, maybe a little more initiative, but he was a good, obedient foot soldier, and he was rewarded for that alone with a trip to Italy. Gary Hartrick, the reliable senior PC, he'd been around, old beefy Hartrick, always at work before anyone else and last to leave. He loved policing, its officiousness and its camaraderie. After 22 years on the force, not a cynical bone in his body, and if truth be told, Monroe's first choice over Zimmerman for any sticky investigative work. For some reason, Hartrick had chosen never to sit the detective exams or write a dissertation on something like policing the inner cities or the youth drug scene. The academics just weren't in him. A good family man with three, count them, he would say, three fine daughters. And not one would bear me a grandchild, he would publicly lament. And last, Wendy Wallace, the division litigator and Zimmerman's least favourite travelling companion, there to keep them on the straight and narrow and dredge up the letter of the law when it likely reared its ugly head. A thin, severe woman with stick legs in a chessboard skirt, like a wading bird. But there he was, he was stuck with her. Everything with her just had to be so, and she was always seeing dangers when there were none, or leading them all down blind alleyways. Fucking lawyers, who needs them? The reverse Midas touch, anything this woman put her hands on turned to shit, he thought. She was there at the directive of the Premier's office and Zimmerman would keep her minimally informed, like travelling with a spy. They all met up at the Qantas lounge a full three hours before the flight for a drink. Zimmerman had already slipped into European mode and he sipped on a tumbler of Campari soda. He was already home. By the time they arrived to Rome's Fumicino International Airport, the baggage claim was suitably chaotic. It seemed an interminable wait with large bosomed women pushing forwards, gesticulating wildly, and the most beautiful thin girls embracing their look-alikes at the arrivals hall. Sleek, well-suited men with fashionable ray-bands were sipping their morning ristrettos, and elegant women matching their handbags skittered through like they were late for a photo shoot. He knew he was back where he needed to be. They checked into the small but comfortable hotel, the Imperial, with excellent views of the Colosseum. The crunch of cars roared past below their window without any apparent order, underneath the orchestration of a white-gloved traffic woman whistling and shouting at them all and waving her arms in a coded semaphore that few seemed to clearly understand. Cinzia Pravini, head of Rome's 4th District Carabinieri, with special liaison to the Swiss Guard and jurisdiction for Vatican City, was waiting, ushering them all into a conference room. She offered them a cappuccino and biscotti, already better than back home. Well, how do we do this? Go up to St Peter's and ring the bell? Zimmerman thought he would start with a joke, but really he didn't know. We'll meet with the Camarlengo's private secretary, Father Basso. Doesn't that pre-warn the masked Hartrick? He was correct as usual. This office has worked with Pier Luigi Basso for more than 30 years. 
is reliable, and if he says he will not do something, he will not do it. I trust him completely. Zimmerman didn't like it already. Things out of his control and literally asking for everything to go pear-shaped. He is the treasurer of the Holy See's advisory board to the Vatican Bank. What he doesn't know about the Catholic Church isn't worth noting, she added in flawless English. There was plenty not to like, and Zimmerman didn't like the blanket statements. <coughs> he changed the subject. Your English is perfect. Where did you learn it? From a governess growing up in Cheltenham. Do you know it? Gloucestershire. Very nice. Very English. A man came in and they rattled off in Italian. It was too fast for Zimmerman to pick it up. His Italian was still a little rusty. She answered him back that the Perth team would be informed about just what she thought they should need. She was treating him like he treated his own lawyer, but he would play along a little longer. She picked up the phone and told them on the line that the Australians were here and were already complaining about the state of the security. She had made too many assumptions and Zimmerman couldn't stand it any more, asking in his best Italian whether she had fully digested the notes he had emailed. Her eyes widened and she apologised profusely. I am sorry, I did not imagine that you spoke at all. It is, of course, just that some of us here, and I would not include myself amongst that group, feel that you have come to our home, our doorstep, so to say, with your accusations and the whole abuse thing, and you then rather foolishly expect to find friendly faces. It shames us all, as you are perfectly aware. Zimmerman agreed that overall it did not look good, and that his own state's politicians had actually wanted the bishop's head, but rather to remind her that he was personally here on another matter entirely, to depose a material witness in a murder investigation. The other stuff was a bonus. Well, not a bonus exactly, as she looked horrified, but more a supplement. Un supplemento, do you see? The police work in that, he was certain she could understand. You are Interpol, after all, he told her in cheap flattery. Pravini relented, standing up and straightening out the creases in a nice suit, with her long manicured fingers free of any rings. Zimmerman noted it all. Frosty reception over. He couldn't take his eyes off her sleek, aquiline nose. When they arrived at the Vatican offices, Father Busser told them all that His Grace was at an ecumenical meeting in Puglia for the full week. Damn it, Zimmerman thought. It was no great surprise that they got to him. Monroe was right. Pravini and Zimmerman both decided that there should be a pursuit down south to the meeting at the rustic town of Alberobello, but Bassa would not let them go unless it was with one of the distinguished members of the Swiss Guard. They have been with us for half a millennium, and they are there for our protection. Hauptmann Bertani must accompany you. He is not only the guard captain, but also a fine defence lawyer. Zimmerman reluctantly agreed. If he was there as an observer, that would be quite acceptable, as long as he didn't get in the way. Oh, he is not there to observe. He is there to shield Bishop Schistoff, the mercenary safeguard all who represent the sea. I hope you understand, Basso said. There was nothing that they could do about it, but both Zimmerman and Pravini didn't much like it. A servant of God, standing now between captor and prey. The whitewashed walls of Alberobello's buildings stand out as one enters the old city. The huts, lovingly known by their nickname, the Trulli, are unique enough to have secured a National Heritage Trust status with their ice cream cake appearance, the limestone bricks of their roofs pushed hard up against one another in ever-diminishing circles until they come to a small point 
with the last hole filled in with a round stone, like medieval flower pots, no mortar but sturdy as anything. Rounding past the entrance, the cobbled main road leading up a steep incline was barely wide enough for two small cars to pass alongside one another without scraping the other's doors, like jousting knights. And it didn't take long to spot him. Shistov stood out like a sore thumb, a big man with bright, soft silver hair brushed all the way back like an opera composer, looking more eccentric than normal, more wild with his locks blowing around hard in a man far more relaxed than his hair. Why not? He'd let his guard down, not expecting anyone to be here. And if it was some ecumenical conference, as Basso had said, it was exceedingly casual, dressed as he was in an old pair of jeans with a bright blue blazer and a polka dot kerchief pushed nonchalant into his top left pocket. It was cold, around his neck tied into a boho loop, he'd wrapped a thick cashmere scarf embossed with the Lion of St Mark. One would swear he was on holiday and not in the rigours of some international religious huddle. They watched him for a little while, following at a temperate distance, moving the car slowly enough that it gave the impression that they were just tourists looking through the front vendor windows of the souvenir shops and contemplating a purchase. All the other drivers were most un-Italian in that they were not bothered or pressing their horns with a group of cars snaking along at a snail's pace in streets filled with locals selling their wares. The bishops stopped now here and then there, taking time to smell stray flowers and to thumb through some old vinyl records or to pick up small terracotta plates, twisting them around to look at the original mark of their maker. He landed in a cul-de-sac where there was no exit, and that would necessitate him turning back to pass through an old alleyway that housed the final trullo and that would lead on to the local chapel. In so doing, he was cornered by Provini's Alfa Romeo, and the front and back doors opened simultaneously, even as the car was still slowly rolling forwards. There was no one for him to recognise, and he could have thought that they were any bocce ball team were it not for the bright golden badges of two of them poking out from under their thick gabardine overcoats. He was done. Banged up to right, some might say, although he didn't quite know why. When people just come for someone, and all that person had really wanted was to simply be left alone. He was resigned to the fact that now he would be denied that quiet time just to relax and to contemplate his faith or to enjoy any period of power. He realised that it wasn't going to happen like that and then and there he knew that no one would ever leave him be. His face showed the soft signs of defeat and he pulled at his pockets running through his rosary and mouthing the incantations. As they pushed him into the back of the car taking care with his soft mane that he didn't scrape his head, they read him his rights in English and Italian, but he wasn't really listening. When they arrived back at the main station, Gianluca Bertani held the bishop arm in arm like an old European friend, his other hand holding a phone pressed firmly to his ear in earnest conversation with the Vatican's chief litigator, Signor Amato. Teddy was in no mood for it, the don't-tell-them-anything routine. He had nothing to say since he had done nothing. But the nothing he'd done all these last years was the something they'd gotten him on, or so he thought. There he was in the small, bleak interview room expecting some sort of political manoeuvrings designed to bring him back to face all those politicians back in Australia and with them a never-sated media flash 
that wouldn't be able to look past all of this and report about all the good things he had done. He imagined maids of the church schools and the chancery getting up on their stepladders to take his photo portraits down, suffering the ignominy of his images all chucked out but not forgotten. He was sure now that he would be remembered, but for all the wrong reasons. His mind flashed with images of Pippin. He'd heard of Pippin's death, but not that he'd committed suicide, <coughs> and he showed a mixed remorse in his passing, but not in his manner. Pippin and all the others had buggered his life up just as surely as they had buggered all those kids, and he felt sick. He was tired of it all, and he'd lost his anonymity again. So what was this about, then? What do you want, exactly? Zimmerman went through his flimsy evidence, the Jeffreys girl, starting with her life story like they were at a summer camp or one of them had been tapped on the shoulder to tell a ghost story. Did he know it? And more, even flimsier on the little Hughes boy. But then he turned to the two absent errant priests and the payments to Ince, their signatures on the money transfer orders courtesy of an email from the diligent Sergeant O'Hurley. Who was this Alan Quatermain? This Quentin Andrews? What did he know of them? They were him, he acknowledged. He knew. But why do nothing with psychopaths in his midst? It's easier to do nothing, at least at the start. No one challenges you when you show leniency. Give them a second and a third chance. Doesn't everyone at least deserve that? But Andrews was something different, a remarkable scholar. Do you know that he could recite large swathes of Corinthians verbatim, like it was some sort of Shakespearean play, and the Gospel of Matthew or Leviticus? Don't get me started on those. He knew them by heart, as if it had been imprinted onto his brain. All God's wrath and retribution stacked up there against the miracles. Love me as no other, or I shall smite you down and labour you with festering diseases. I'm paraphrasing, not, not like him, of course. He could put on a hell of a show. I sort of fell in love with him, figuratively, I mean. I, I thought him such a leader that the rest of us could follow. Teddy was temporarily lost in adoration, but then he re-entered the remorseful atmosphere of the interview room. But he came to me with so many demons, and it's nothing I can reveal. He told it to me in the sanctum <coughs> of the confessional. But isn't he dead? Surely confidentiality doesn't apply any longer. I, I don't know about that. It's a bond even after death. There's no salvation of the soul if we would all but trash it afterwards in any way we like. Come on now, your grace, said Zimmerman. There's definitely no bond now. Would a doctor refuse to tell me about his dead patient's condition or a lawyer an equal confession of guilt? I cannot speak for other professions. They are professions, after all, and ours is a calling. He was being intransigent and just digging in his heels. Well, what do you know of Quatermain? You just said they were him, didn't you? That was no slip of the tongue. What did you mean by it? Surely he was the same man, yes? Alike, certainly, but whether they were the same, I cannot say. Different credentials, different backgrounds. Quatermain, I would say, was more godly but less liturgical. Yes, I, I venture a different man. But what is sameness anyway? Who amongst us is not a different man through time? each of us thwarted by our own demons and pushed into different versions of ourselves. Those cast as the least painful version lead the happiest of lives, do they not? Teddy knew this subject all too well. But, Your Grace, I merely ask if this was one and the same man. That I cannot say, even if I know. 
So why protect this thing, even if in your own estimation he needed help? Why can't you save the many over the one or even the two? Because it is religion, not philosophy. It isn't the greater good for the greater number. Even the most wretched soul is worth saving. If a man has 100 sheep and one is lost, will you leave the 99 and go looking for the wandering one? This is what Jesus said in the Gospel, according to Matthew. Oh, Matthew again, like Roxburgh or even Atwood. What was it with this apostle? This is bullshit, piped Omer de Judd. It took an Iranian to cut through the theological walls. He was angry with this ecclesiastical nonsense and his patience was out. Tell us, old man, did he kill these children or not? Zimmerman could understand his frustration. The Catholic world was foreign soil to him too and living amongst it this last year had proven just as alienating. It's precisely those times when some people are expected to come through that they can just sit by the sidelines in baffling apathy. I cannot say, he reiterated. Zimmerman, too, was exasperated. He had no stock in this canon law. So you don't bother to get professional help for a sociopath in your own house. Why should you if you can't even deal with the tallywhackers? It was getting unseemly, and just then he threw the rosary onto the desk. What's the story here, then? How did you get that, the bishop asked. Your school chum, chum Doc, Mr Justice Nigel Rotherham, gave you up. Let us search your desk, all those letters warning you about Pippin. Pathetic. But this, this is something else. Teddy relented. He felt a strong, oppressive pressure on his chest. He let me know he had used it on the little boy all those years ago. It would not leave him alone. The voices came back to him and told him now to punish the young girl. He had sent it to me just before he died, I think to make them stop. I threw the letter out and I did not recall where it came from. We all saw his funeral notice and I decided to let it all be. It seemed to be Teddy's way, letting things be. What can you tell us? Zimmerman felt his fist curling into a furious ball. Go back to my private office and seek out an unassuming slim black exercise book. It lies between two volumes. Ott's marvellous fundamentals of Catholic dogma. And you'll like this young man, he said, pointing to a Judd. Belloc's great heresies. There he proves the superiority of the Christian sacrament over Protestantism and Islam. Teddy shifted in his seat, appearing even larger than his huge frame. He seemed self-satisfied with all the answers that proved for him the supremacy of his own faith and that led him shield a predator amongst his flock. A soft, glowing smile ran across his face now, not expecting any challenge, and Zimmerman nodded towards Omid, whom he could not fault for virtually losing interest, but whom he could commend for showing remarkable restraint. What I cannot divulge, his diary may. Only now does your morality let you open up and recommend us this volume? I could not volunteer it, but since you asked me, I can direct you to it. He detached himself from it all, and there was nothing further to ask him. There would be no forthcoming answers anyway. So am I free to go, he asked. There was no one standing in his way, and Cinzia Previni kicked open the door. For him at least, the evening had ended far more favourably than it had started, and he swept out into the street without looking back. Chapter 17
Zimmerman waited until midnight to call Monroe. It was 6am on a Sunday morning in Perth and he answered in surprisingly strong spirit. Monroe told him that he was better for hearing his voice and eating a little at least since the jaundice had dissipated. Tired was all, the tiredness of knowing one's fate. He decided not to have the chemotherapy and in that he had the support of his wife and children. When he rang off, Monroe called Shrewsbury to open the church whose offices had been vacant over the last two months. They entered in front of the remnants of a small gaggle of protesters who had camped near the front lawn, placards and sleeping bags in tow. And there it was in the library, an unassuming, soft, mole-skinned volume, right where Schistoff had said it would be, handwritten in close, cropped style, the marginalia traipsing alongside in cursive Hebrew or Aramaic with Greek lettering across the pages, if indeed it was any language at all. He figured them to be the products of a scattered mind. Afterthoughts. Overthoughts. The page scribbled with wave lines and incomprehensible script that ran in ever-diminishing circles as the semblance of words. The words of a tutor that had lain inside the head of any madman. Monroe drove back to the office for a rare visit. They all greeted him like a long-lost son, poring over him as if he were a child and telling him how well he looked grabbing at him and apologising if in his obvious frailty they might have hurt him as it was not their intention, the usual platitudes but all with hearts in the right place. He laboured over the pages in his old office, it required quite some effort, sitting diligently with pen and paper to piece together those parts that were legible and also interpretable, and which might somehow with creativity fit and formulate a narrative some new written history of events that he could now transmit to awaiting Zimmerman. There were large parts that Monroe discarded in his edit, non-sequitur bits that each would need dissection and close scrutiny later. It was hard to know if it all formed one or many possible stories, but the way he structured it manufactured a confession. The entry started mid-sentence as if anyone would comprehend its premise and there was no punctuation at all, just freewheeling thought onto the paper. It read, Firstly, there's nothing else that he had told me that I needed to do, nor was there anything that he had not revealed to me that I did not know, and it is the Gospel of Matthew where all is revealed, even for sinners like me, that we would be led like the Magi or Zoroaster, by a guiding light to the birth of a new one, or that we should live like the Apostle John on insects or on wild honey among the Pharisees of the Sadducees of our day, and I would have been tempted just as our Lord had been by the devil himself, as he was in the desert, but I am not one like him to resist such temptation, or to overcome Satan so readily with the performance of miracles, or that I could not live as he had said upon bread alone but on his words, or to throw myself off of the highest tower just to prove the strength of the Lord like some public test or the strength of my faith, nor should I be interested in the wealth of all the kingdoms in the world just to rid me of the devil within where some have called upon it in our own Capernaum or Zebulun, or elsewhere to gather together my own disciples, as I have tried to do, recruiting just one man called Ince with no brothers or sisters, even as our Lord had done in calling Simon, known as Peter, and his worthy brother Andrew, and then James, and his own brother John, to put down their profitable nets and come away from their fishing 
to follow him, just as Ince have followed me all these years, to two places where I have done the most terrible of things that two little children have endured, and that I would practice hard on one young boy whose fancy I was taken with, to see him run from me and hide in shame that there would be the chance that someone like this young boy, with no understanding whatsoever of anything I had put in place to achieve, could possibly have known, and that it would be right and proper to put him away, and to snuff him out so that he could tell no one of my ambitions for this race, and how they would cherish me if only they knew how much I loved them, and expect to be loved by them in return for all the good that I can do without some interference by a child who could not understand my advances on him with the love that I would show, and that either is too young or too foolish to understand these advances and the pleasure it might bring to commune with a young innocent and teach him like the Greeks might do with nothing sinister in our communion, but that rather than talk of these things that it would be right and proper to honour their customs after the deed was done, to silence this young boy and to tie his great toes together, as my disciple had read of in the old spirit tales, not to throw some blame upon any of their elders, but to tell them how much I would respect their ways if they would understand what I wish for them, and there would be from all my ministrations nothing to leave behind in the fullness of their examination, and no desert miracles or healings for all their ills that I could witness and feel impotent to protect against all their hideous sicknesses. But even in these blessings, as our Lord had done from these terrible places of the meek who should, shall inherit all, to each like me so poor in spirit, and for all with hunger or with thirst, and those again like me so impure of heart that they be persecuted. Zimmerman tried to follow Munro's annotation, rubbing his eyes and re-reading every word in the isolation of his sterile hotel room, he couldn't grasp some of the more psychotic ramblings from the original Monroe had scanned and sent. The neologisms of a bedlamite, he thought. The mea culpa was clear, but there was neither preparation for it nor preventions that could have been made. He was already formulating an excuse why such a priest could neither have been predicted nor stopped and he imagined the wording of the questions any future inquiry might ask. In corners there were small drawings of stick-figured men and boys together holding hands and calls to the great Greek philosophers, homage to the pederists mixed in with his foolish comparison of the task of finding disciples, in the mind of this priest soulful, even righteous assignations. The advantage one old mentor may take upon the minds and the bodies of children innocent of life and of experience. And there were images too of the women, stick limbs splayed with scratched out lower regions, and the blood red angry crayon markings limed and underlined in vicious repetition between their legs. What early agony had wrought this mind that thinks them fit for violation? What parody of Leviticus that would intone a priest to present some local sacrifice as misuse of the laws. And then there was more, a second beginning by the priest yielding up to something greater than himself that he assumed was somehow moral. But no matter how savage the death he had personally executed, he could not rid himself of its daring innermost possession mourning not for the children, but only for his want of free will. 
The second missive Monroe had sent demanded from him even more annotation, but the culpability for Lisa's death, no matter how much amendment had been made, was crystal clear. It went on. I have yielded myself up after all the caterwauls and learned the rumpipe lessons. Demons be gone, your bygone impressments on my will, and wanting not to fade in shrugging off their overthreshing power. From thence everwards to be a goodly son, with fresh-breathed spirit hailed and pulsed into my nostrils. And after this little boy has practised, did I feel the power that made me like our saviour to come again when I would feel such need to entertain that strength that they would not have understood, and to hear his voice so clearly in my head telling me what I must do, or even feared so much that it made the need to go away and to die, to come back anew, and not to hear of their slightest condemnation, and with this I did not receive the least rebuke, with no one coming after me, so changing of me into someone else was so easy, that no one bothered, not even Mother Church herself, nor my own bishop, and I would feel empowered and emboldened by this renewal, armed with the beatitudes that have none murdering, being judged as one would not even judge them, as they would rightly kill an animal. For does not our own St Paul say in Ephesians or Psalms that in your anger you've not sinned, and therefore I teach them all the power of the great commandments, not only to obey them, but to defy them if needs be, that thou shalt not murder, and yet one can, if it be justified as in war, and to leave the symbol of this power upon her person in its original Hebrew or Aramaic, so that they would know of its strength but that it could be rained upon one girl, seeing me with all those young boys, teaching them as the Greeks would teach young boys about themselves, as something elegant and even as an ideal of knowledge, if there is just communion with young men, just as the ancient philosophers had done, as the most natural thing imaginable. Then did I hear her laugh at our communion, and did I try to catch up with the misguided girl whom I had helped all those times with the powerful drugs, that had overtaken her body and cleansed her of them, just as our Lord had cleansed off the possession of the damned and cast out demons from them, did I clear this child, who now runs from me, not understanding me. And so I would need to take my disciple and let her understand the punishment of the Lord, that she'd be cast into the sulphurous fires of Gehenna, like all other women fornicators, knowing that she had rid herself before of a child from her unholy womb and then shown in the courts of the wisest men of the Sanhedrin that such will be the case to the lands of Sodom, that they appear as innocent of the, as the doves, but are yet shrewd like wolves. For in such I shall, like our Lord, smite them down with swords, and though I take the body, will cleanse the soul and cast out this weeded zizania from our midst to place the mark as deep as I can find of the rosary upon her, so that she may be recognised to travel from her world to Gehenna to the Enlightened One, and ravage as I did the foulest recesses of her body, to let out all the blood that was there contained, and free her from those demons that possessed her in laughter at me, and to know that the fountain of her blood would flow and rush out of her, as the blind would then open their eyes, or the paralysed would walk, and that those who will try to keep their lives will lose them by my hand, for those who will lose them and come with me will be found, as in the Gospel of our St Matthew.
Hosanna.